Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Thank you for your interest in our chapel messages, whether you are listening online, on CD, or subscribe to our chapel podcast. Hope that you'll be encouraged and challenged in your walk with Christ as you listen to this message. Uh, let me let me frame what I would like to do with you this afternoon, and uh, then then say a word of prayer. Uh, my um, assignment over these couple days is to talk about relationships and progressive sanctification. Um, and and these first two talks really in- interact with with the context in which this this work of progressive sanctification will take place in the local churches where you will serve. Uh, what I did this morning was to lay out for you a cultural problem that this this language of community and this this call to be in, in uh, open this this call to invite people in to intrude on your private space for the purpose of your your growth in grace is culturally counterintuitive. Because we have a culture that has uh, institutionalized individualism, institutionalized that, that big separation between your public persona and your private life. And you have to understand the culture in which you minister. That, that it doesn't move toward that kind of openness and that kind of willingness to have people intrude on my private life. And, and that means that we can live in endless networks of casual relationships that never really deepen beyond the casual. And that's a, that's a very significant thing if, in fact, it is true that our walk with God is designed to be a community project. What I want to discuss with you this afternoon is, I would entitle, Progressive Sanctification and the Antisocial Nature of Sin. Um, and, And if the first talk was highlighting a cultural problem, this talk is highlighting a moral problem. We have a moral problem when it comes to this area of progressive sanctification. It's not just the influence of culture, but it's, it's the problem of in the internal motivation that you carry around inside of you because you're a sinner. Now, if that doesn't make any sense to you, hopefully it will by the time we're done this afternoon. Let's, let's pray. Lord, we are so very, very grateful that by an act of Your sovereign mercy, we have come to be Your children. We, we thank You that although we are sinners, because of the Lord Jesus Christ, You look on us with love and favor. 
What a sweet reality that is for us. And we thank You that in our sin You don't find us despicable and You aren't revolted by us and You don't turn from us. You don't give up on us. But You're loving and faithful and perseverant in Your grace. And You will not leave the work of Your hands until that work is done. We would praise You. So that does give us hope. That although we so often don't get it right, although we lose our way, although even though we say we worship You, there are moments where we rebel against You. You are faithful. And You call and draw us back. You you convict us by Your grace. You use circumstances and relationships to expose us so that we would run once again to You. Thank You for that amazing plan. You are love. You are love. And because You are love, You are our hope. Thank You. Thank You. We would thank You. Won't You be to us this afternoon the wonderful Counselor? Won't You course amongst the seats in this place and apply Your Word in in ways that only You can apply it? We would pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Maya... Son Ethan was, as a little boy, playing in the backyard all by himself. I was watching him out there, and he just seemed like he was in this solitary moment by himself in the yard. And I, I was, he was just a little guy, and I was feeling bad for him. And so I, I went out, and I said, Ethan, you're all by yourself. Would you like? Would you like Daddy to, to play with you? And, and he said, no, Dad, I'm fine. I'm with my friends. I looked around. I couldn't see anybody. And I said, well, what are you talking about, Ethan? He says, he says Daddy, I'm, I'm here and you've got to get this name. This name is just really great. I'm with Joe Fakeny. Joe was a Fakeny. <laughs> Joe wasn't real. I love that name. I don't know how he came up with that name, but he said, and and so I began to interview uh, Ethan about about Joe, his imaginary friend, and I realized that he just didn't have imaginary Joe, but he had Joe had an imaginary family, and Joe lived in an imaginary city, and I mean. This kid was visualizing the whole community that he was he was hanging out with. Uh, and it was that community was as real as real can be to him. Now, if you hear that story and you think, well, that's a cute little story about a little boy. But what is what in the world does that have to do with progressive sanctification and the the antisocial nature of sin? Well, you need. You need to follow on the journey I'm going to take you on this afternoon. Because what Ethan is doing in that moment is exercising a significant and important human ability. 
It's ability actually given to him by his creator. It's an ability that separates that little boy from all of the rest of creation. Here it is. Human beings have been given the ability by God to imagine. Now stay with me because I think that we don't understand imagination. Imagination is not first the ability to conjure up things that are unreal. Imagination in its purest form is the ability to see what is real but cannot be physically seen. Let me say that again. Imagination is the ability to see what is not physically real, but not physically seeable, but is real. It's not the ability to conjure up the unreal, but to see what is real, but is physically unseen. Now, why? Why would God give us such an ability? Oh, you got to get this. Because God is a spirit. And if God is a spirit, if God is an unseen being who is setting up a not-of-this-world kingdom, then imagination to the Christian is indispensable. Uh, in fact, we could argue that the reality the eyes of your imagination sees is the reality that you live by. No human being, no human being living anywhere at any time only lives by physical sight. You are much more deeply and profoundly motivated by the visions that your eyes of the heart see and that your heart embraces. You are always serving some overarching, some compelling vision. And God is in the center of your imagination or something else is. Human beings don't live by instinct. We live by means of imagination. And and you're, you're operating after, you're living toward, you're engaged by, you're motivated by some overarching vision that has claimed the allegiance of your heart. Now this is what we actually mean by dreaming. Here's what dream, a dream is. I don't mean those weird things that you have at night. Uh, a dream is... Imagination coupled with desire and projected into the future. A dream is imagination coupled with desire and projected into the future. Now here's what's supposed to happen to me. As a human being made in the image of God, as a human being made for God, God is meant to exist, to reside in the center of my imagination. Uh, God is, and God's purposes, God's plan, God's character is to fill my imagination. And so I live in a way where everything I do and everything I say, everything I am as a human being is 
is oriented by this grand vision of the glory of God, this grand vision of the success of His kingdom. I live for His kingdom and for His righteousness. That is not being deeply spiritual. That is what the normal human existence was supposed to be. I live with God in my eyes. Have you ever heard that language? That's biblical language. I live with God before my eyes. That's imagination. I'm in a situation, and although I'm standing with you, and I see you physically, I actually see God. I see the purposes of God. I see the desires of God. I see the plans of God. It's never just you and me. It's always the hugeness of the plan and the glory of God that I see in that moment. I actually see it. Now, you know what I mean. I don't mean that I'm having some hallucination. But I I visualize God in that moment. I don't look at that situation and ever think that it's just you and me. Because it's never just you and me. God is here. God's plan is here. God's glory is here. It's, It's God. It's all about God. That's the way I was meant to live. What does this mean? It means that human beings were meant to live transcendent lives. What does that mean? It means the borders of my life are always meant to be bigger than the borders of my life. I'm supposed to live with transcendent things, things much bigger than me, things much more glorious than my life to be the principal things that move and motivate me every day. Those those transcendent visions of the purpose of God are meant to be the reason I do what I do in my marriage. And I do what I do in my parenting. And I do what I do in my job. And the reason I do what I do at the restaurant and wherever. That, literally, it should be that practical. Those transcendent purposes of God. The will of God. The glory of God. The plan of God. The purposes of God. The presence of God should orient how I eat. I'm serious. And so I don't, I don't eat in this endlessly self-indulgent way where, where eating is just about my pleasure and, and I'll eat until I've achieved personal pleasure. Well, you know if you do that, you reach a certain age where you're in big trouble. Uh, because I live with God before my eyes. That's how human beings were meant to live. Now, here's what happens. Sin atrophies your imagination. Sin shrinks your vision. In fact, what sin actually does is it shrinks your life down to the size of your life. So what now really motivates me is what I want and how I want it and when I want it and where I want it. Uh, My highest concern, my highest value is me. Now, listen, that by its very nature is an antisocial way of living. 
That's not living outwardly. That's living inwardly. That's, that's life curved in on itself. Where I become my highest reality. I become my most important thing. I am the most significant thing to me. Now that by the very nature, that is destructive to relationships. I, I'm going to say something that may seem radical to you, but I, I, I think I can argue this. You have to understand sin is not first the breaking of rules. Sin is first the breaking of relationship. And when you understand that what I first do is I, I refuse to give the love that is due God, and because I don't love God, then I do what I want to do. And I break the rules. That's why the, the first command of the Ten Commandments is about what? Say it. Yeah, loving God above all else. And, and so what sin does is curves me in on me. I, I break relationship with God. And I do what I want to do with my life. And also in doing that, by the very nature, I break community with people. Because I'm not living this outward life that is about loving God and loving the people God has placed in, in my life. I've curved in on myself. Let me take you to uh, some passages. Uh, turn to 2 Corinthians 5. And I'm just going to read a few vignettes here in uh, the epistles. Verse 14, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. Now listen to this. And He died for all that those who live should no longer what? Live for themselves. That's the atrophy of sin. That's... That's sin curved in on itself. That what happens is, I live in a way I was never designed to live. Shockingly, in the face of the grandeur and sovereignty and power and glory and grace of God, in the face of that, I live for me. Hear this. I want to say this again. I'm going to keep saying this. That is not just uh, about spirituality in whatever sense we would use that. Listen, when I live for me, I am actually denying the true nature of my humanity. I'm diminishing my humanity because my humanity, the very definition of my humanity, is I was meant to live this transcendent life in connection with the hugeness of the glory of God. That's how I was meant to live. And that's why people are capable of doing inhumane things to one another. 
because they've lost contact with their humanity. Because it does become all about me. And, and the highest law is my law. And the biggest offense in my life is not offenses against God. It's any offense against me. How dare you? And I'm murderous in my thoughts and I'm violent in my anger. And sometimes that will mean I'll just give you the silent treatment. That means I'll, I'll cut you out of my life relationally for whatever purpose, for whatever length of time it takes to satisfy my vengeance because you've gotten in my way. Or sometimes that will mean a cruel act of violence. Maybe that's a, a parent grabbing the arm of a child and pinching it till it's black and blue. It's nothing to do with biblical parenting. But you're in my way somehow and I'm violently angry. Or maybe it's, it's unkind words that should never ever be spoken that, that ring down the years. I mean, think about this, brothers and sisters. I mean, how, who here, who here wouldn't like to take some of your words out of history? Who here wouldn't want to remove things that you say, you have said, from the memory of other people? Who here would be comfortable with me playing a public recording of everything you said last month? curves us in on ourselves. Sin causes us to live for ourselves. Or look at Ephesians 4. Just a couple vignettes. Verse 17. Notice the contrast here. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Now listen to what it says. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. What drives the, the system? My desire for whatever pleasure I can conceive. My desire for whatever would make me comfortable or happy or pleased or satisfied or whatever. And so in that system, there is no internal restraint system. Because I go wherever my pleasure leads me. And, in, and there's not only no internal restraint system, there's no... There's no checking of how that affects you. Because what's important to me is not how it affects you. What's important to me is what it gives to me. I love me. And I have a wonderful plan for my life. That's the system. Or look at Philippians 3. Verse 18. For I as often told, for as I have often told you before, and now say again, with 
tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Listen to this. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. What a powerful description. It's that description of ravenous, self-defined hunger for whatever. I, I, I serve at the altar of my own craving. Uh, now that's the nature of, of sin. There was a uh, French scientist by the name of Henri Dupois who was given the um, hmm, job description during World War I of finding a way to preserve the perishable food that was being shipped to the soldiers on the front lines. The problem was, by the time that food got to the front lines, it was spoiled and soldiers were suffering from food poisoning. Dubois began to work with this newfound substance called plastic and realized that if he heated that plastic, it would shrink around the shape of whatever it was around. And it would, it would shrink to the exact form of that thing. And he realized that if he added a vacuum, it would shrink even tighter and you could have an airtight, sealed little package, the exact shape of whatever it was around. And we all have sort of a love-hate relationship with the legacy of Henri Dupois. Because sometimes you like shrink wrap and sometimes, when there's a CD inside there, you curse shrink wrap. And you say, Dupois, I'll get you. <laughs> well, hear this. Sin is the ultimate shrink wrap. That's exactly what sin does. Sin shrinks your life to the size of your life and then sucks out all the other air. Sin causes you to be quite content to live in the claustrophobic confines of your own little self-defined world. Now, now think, for example, of what this does for marriage. I meet you and I fall in love with you because I think you're actually going to help me realize my personal dream. I actually think that you're into my dream. And I think I found a dream deliverer that I can live with. And, and I love you. You are saying and doing all the right things. And I'm projecting down the future. And I have a certain uh, fairly well-defined dream of what a marriage can be. And I think you'll help me get there. What I don't realize is the other person is doing the same thing. She thinks, I found the man. <laughs> 
he seems to be quite willing to help me get my dream. And although they've been, they have gone through premarital counseling, you know, a little bit of finances, a little bit of communication, a little bit of conflict resolution, a dose of sexual instruction, and they're, they're standing at the altar, and there is a minister in front of them, and he says, God talk. God's not part of this thing at all. These two people are in pursuit of an utterly self-defined, self-oriented dream. The problem is they don't realize that their dreams don't at all agree. Now, what's going to happen? Oh, you just know this is going to happen. There's going to be a moment where that dream, that dream, be, those two dreams begin to collide. And there's all kinds of carnage that happens. I, I have this experience again and again where I'll sit with a couple uh, 15 years into marriage. I know there was a point where they adored one another. I know there was a point where they hung on one another's words. Now they sit separated on the couch and they can barely say a civil word to one another. And very often what, what gets uncovered is God wasn't part of that thing at all. God just wasn't. I want to recommend to you, I'm going to read from this this afternoon, Eugene Peterson, Eat This Book. If you think that's a strange title, it's taken from Revelation. Where John is told to, to dip the scroll in the, in the honey and to eat it. And uh, Peterson says that's exactly what happens with God's Word. It's beautiful and sweet, but then it upsets you. Uh, and that's what it was meant to do. Well, let me, let me read this to you. I think this is just beautifully stated. A new twist on non-Trinitarian ways of reading the Bible has emerged in our times. It has reached the scale of epidemic and requires special attention. It can be understood best, I think, as a replacement trinity. Unlike the depersonalized readings of the text that we have just marked, he's talking about earlier writings, uh, this way is very personal and also very Trinitarian, but also totally at odds with what is achieved while reading in submission to the authority of the Holy Trinity. Trinitarian thinking, praying before Holy Scripture cultivates a stance and attitude that submits to being comprehensively formed by God in the way God comprehensively and personally reveals Himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the Holy Scriptures. The alternative to that is taking charge of our own formation. The most popular way of conceiving this self these days is by understanding the self in a Trinitarian way. This way of self-understanding is not as an intellectual uh, interested in ideas or as a moral being seeking a good life or as a soul looking for solitary solace, but as a divine self in charge of myself. And this divine self is understood as a holy trinity. Here's how it works. It is important to observe that in the formulation of this new trinity that defines itself, defines itself as a sovereign text for living. Get that. 
I'm the sovereign text for my living. The Bible is neither ignored or banned. It holds, in fact, an honored place. But the three-person Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is replaced by a very individualized personal trinity, watch this, of my holy wants, my holy needs, and my holy feelings. We live in an age in which all of we have all been trained from the cradle to choose for ourselves what is best for us. We have a few years of apprenticeship at this before we are sent out on our own. But the training begins early. By the time we can hold a spoon, we choose between a half a dozen cereals for breakfast, ranging from Cheerios to cornflakes. Our taste, inclinations, and appetites are consulted endlessly. We are soon deciding what clothes we will wear and in what style we will have our hair cut. The options proliferate. What TV channels we will view, what courses we will take in school, what college we will attend, what courses we will sign up for, what model and color of car we will buy, what church we will join. We learn early with multiple confirmations as we grow older that we have a say in the formation of our lives and within certain bounds the decisive say. If the, if the culture does a thorough job on us and it turns out to be mightily effective with most of us, we enter adulthood with a working assumption that whatever we need and want and feel forms the divine control center of our lives. The new Holy Trinity, the sovereign self, expresses itself in holy needs, holy wants, and holy feelings. The time and intelligence that our ancestors spent on understanding the sovereignty revealed in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are directed by our contemporaries in inferring and evaluating the sovereignty of our needs, wants, and feelings. My needs are non-negotiable. My so-called rights, defined individually, are fundamental to my identity. My need for fulfillment, for expression, for affirmation, for sexual satisfaction, for respect, my need to get my own way, all these provide a foundation to the centrality of me and fortify myself against diminution. Wow! What writing! My wants are evidence of my expanding sense of kingdom. I train myself to think big because I am big, important, significant. I am larger than life and so require more and more goods and services, more and more things and more power. Consumption and acquisition are the new fruits of the Spirit. My feelings are the truth of who I am. Anything or person who can provide me with ecstasy or excitement, with joy, with stimulus, with spiritual connection, validates my sovereignty. Did you hear what I just read? I believe the church is jumping through that hoop all over the place. We believe that worship is about stimulating and exciting people. It's about competing with the culture. Because we're afraid if we don't do that, those ecclesiastic consumers will leave our religious department store and shop at another store. And we can't participate in one another's lives because our community keeps shifting members all the time. It's like what's happened in pro sports. You can't root for a team anymore because you never know who's playing on it. Right? And just when you, when you develop a little bit of affection for the team, you realize you're rooting for strangers who you don't even know how they got there. This, of course, employs 
involves employing quite a large cast of therapists, travel agents, gadgets, and machines, recreations, and entertainment to cast out the devils of boredom or loss or discontentment, all the feelings that undermine or challenge my self-sovereignty. In the last 200 years, a huge literature, both scholarly and popular, has developed around the understanding of this new holy trinity of needs, wants, and feelings that make up the sovereign self. It amounts to an immense output of learning. Our new class of spiritual masters is composed of scientists and economists and physicians and psychologists, educators and politicians, writers and artists. They are every bit as intelligent and passionate as our early church theologians and every bit as religious and serious. For they know that what they come up with has enormous implications for everyday living. The studies they conduct and the instructions they provide in the service of the God that is us, the Godhead composed by our holy needs, holy wants, and holy feelings, are confidently pursued and very convincing. It is very hard not to be convinced with all these experts giving their witness. Under their tutelage, I become quite sure that I am the authoritative text for the living of my life. We might suppose that the preaching of this new Trinitarian religion poses no great threat to people who are baptized in the threefold name of the Trinity, who regularly and prayerfully recite the Trinitarian Apostle and Nicene creeds, who begin prayers with the invocation, Our Father, who daily get out of bed to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior and frequently sing, Come Holy Spirit, Heavenly Dove. But this rival sovereignty is couched in such spiritual language and we are so easily convinced of our own spiritual sovereignty that it does catch our attention. The new spiritual masses assume, assure us that all our spiritual needs are included in this new trinity. Our need for meaning and transcendence, our wanting a larger life, our feelings of spiritual significance, and of course, there's plenty of space to make room for God as much or as little as you like. The new trinity doesn't get rid of God or the Bible. Now watch this. It merely puts them to the service of needs, wants, and feelings. Which is fine with us, for we've been trained all our lives to treat everyone and everything that way. It goes with the territory. It's the prerogative of sovereignty. What has become devastatingly clear in our day is that the core reality of the Christian community Listen to this. The sovereignty of God revealing Himself in three persons is contested and undermined by virtually everything we learn in our schooling, everything presented to us in the media, every social workplace and political expectation directed our way as the experts assure us of the sovereignty of self. These voices so perfectly tuned to us, so authoritatively expressed and custom designed to show us how to live out our sovereign selves that we are hardly aware that we have traded in our holy Bibles for this new text, the Holy Self. And don't we still attend Bible studies and read our assigned verse or chapter each day as we are relentlessly encouraged to consult our needs and dreams and preferences, we hardly notice the shift from what we have so long professed to believe. The danger of installing the self as the authoritative text for living at the same time we are honoring the Holy Scriptures by, by giving them a prominent place on the shelf is both enormous and insidious. Hear this. None of us is immune to the danger. Now here's what I want to say to you. 
the reason the external cultural emphasis is so dangerous for the church of Jesus Christ is it appeals to the deep desires of the sinful nature for the sovereignty of self. Brothers and sisters, the cultural problem is dangerous because it connects to a moral problem inside each one of us. And I will say this to you. I don't always want to be holy. I want my comfort. I want you to like me. I want to be affirmed. I want the best steak ever. I want chocolate within reach. I want, I want, I want. Think about this. Why do you ever get mad in traffic? Because it challenges your self-sovereignty. Why do you ever say an unkind word to a person? Because they've challenged your self-sovereignty. Why do you ever envy? Because it challenges your self-sovereignty. Why do you ever uh, listen to stories in a conversation, not, not listening to other people's stories, because you're rehearsing your story, because you want to tell the best story, because those stories may challenge your self-sovereignty. I heard a great uh, account of, a, of an astronaut who realized one day at a party that he had the best story ever. It was a story that would trump all other stories because he walked on the moon. And he'd sit in a conversation. People say, you wouldn't believe what happened to me yesterday. And he'd wait for the silence and say, a couple years ago, I walked on the moon. Trumped every other story. You see, why do we experience rage? Why do we experience disappointment? Why do we experience conflict? Why do we experience envy and fear and disappointment? Because we want to be sovereign. And you see, once you want to be sovereign, rather than people being viewed as instruments God has placed in my life to grow me because God is ultimate and, and taking on His character is the agenda, I see people as dangerous and threatening and obstacles. And my goal is to construct a relationship that m- manipulates me into the service Manipulates you into the service of me. And that goes in the exact opposite direction of personal progressive sanctification. I don't see you as an instrument. I don't see you as a help. I see you as a threat. I see you as an obstacle. And, and inside, I'm anxious and nervous and ill at ease. I don't want to be open. I think if I'm open, you may take advantage of me. You may take power over me. And that challenges my sovereignty. You may actually conclude that I'm wrong. I'm weak. I'm flawed. I'm failing. I don't want you to think about that about me. Because I want to be on top. I want to be in control. Think about this. You're there. Brothers and sisters, you're there. Why is it so hard for you to receive confrontation? Isn't it hard? I mean, nobody in this room woke up and said, you know, Lord, it's been a while. 
since I've been rebuked. And, you know, I know I need it. I know I'm a sinner. So if you could just send some rebuke rebuke my way, I would feel so loved. What happens to you when somebody uh, confronts you, even lovingly? I know what happens to me. I can feel it begin to bubble inside of me. I can feel the emotional temperature change. I can see that, feel that, that wall begin to go up. Have you been there? And, and then, all of a sudden, my personal inner uh, defense lawyer begins to operate. I begin to argue, you misunderstood me. This is not really what I did. I'm not the only one who does this. And, and then I, I begin that, that turning the table thing that we do. Because now I want to take the focus off my flaws. I want to put the focus on your flaws. I want you to understand that I am not the only sinner in the room. Thank you. Why, do I, why would I do that? Are you ready for this? I don't want to be holy. I want you to like me. I want to be affirmed. I want to be successful. I want to be in charge. I've just shrunk my life to the size of my life and I don't even know I'm doing it. You're a pastor? Oh, don't you think. Don't you let yourself think that you're only made motivated by the glories of the kingdom of God. Because, Pastor, you know, you're capable of being pretty defensive. You're capable of being pretty self-righteous. You're capable of being pretty angry and hurt at somebody who would question your wisdom, question your leadership, question your character. Here's what you've got to understand. If progressive sanctification is about moving out as one needing help and committed to be a helper, let me say that again, If progressive sanctification is about moving out as one needing help and being committed to be a helper, I've got to understand that sin sends me in the completely opposite direction. I don't want help in that way. And I don't want to be a helper. I want my needs met. I want my desires fulfilled. And I want my feelings validated. I would propose to you, if you visit the last month, the places where you were most personally 
angry. Angry. That there's a good possibility that it had nothing to do with the kingdom of God. It had to do with your kingdom. Your power. Your approval. Your being right. Your will. Your way. You were not raging because that person broke God's law. You were raging because they broke your law. So where do we need to start? Where do we need to start? I think this is very, very important to say. I think the church of Jesus Christ needs to confess, God, there are many ways in which we demonstrate we don't want what you want for us. It's not just that we don't understand the theology of progressive sanctification. It's not just that we don't know how to organize people in a way so that they can have productive and healthy relationships with one another. It's not just that we haven't defined ministry clear enough. What we want is to be at the center of our world. We want to be indulged. We want to be pleased. We want to rule us. And yes, Lord, by Your grace, there are times when we get it right. There are times when we really do want to be holy in Your eyes. There are times when we really do find joy in the glory of Your kingdom. There are times when Your purposes are the purposes that captivate us. But Lord, there are many times when that's not what moves and motivates us at all. I don't want a wife who will be an instrument of help and redemption. That's not what I married her for. I want her just to like me. I want her just to sort of stay off and back. And give me plenty of chocolate. Is there a theme here? Luella says that way too many of my illustrations have to do with food. I would ask you this afternoon, what is the dream that you're actively pursuing? What fills the eyes of your imagination? Whose sovereignty really does excite you? I believe if we're ever going to become that active, intrusive community. We have to start by confessing that we don't want it. We can't start with strategies for ministry. We can't start with just a theology of sanctification. We have to start humbly confessing to the moral problem. We do live for ourselves. 
And God is calling us by His grace to something better, way, way better than that. But you have to start, brothers and sisters, by saying, God, I have to confess, there's an awful lot of the time where I don't want for me what You want for me. Won't You please forgive me? And Lord, won't You rescue this man from me? Because my problem is not just the culture. My problem is not just the church and the weaknesses in this area. My problem is not just theological. My problem is a deeply moral problem. I have shrunk my life to the size of my life. And Lord, in Your grace, won't You pry open that little kingdom of self and won't You pull me out and won't You place me in the middle of Your big sky country so I can experience once again the glory that is truly glory. And if that's going to happen in the church of Jesus Christ, it's got to happen with leaders. Listen, the problem with the kingdom of self is that it's a costume kingdom. It masquerades very easily as the kingdom of God. You can be a pastor. You can think it's about God when it's not about God at all. You can think you're conducting a Christian marriage where it's not a Christian marriage at all. You can think you're doing Christian parenting where it's another agenda. We do not have the liberty to assume that just because we're God's people that we're living for the kingdom. Because I believe in every one of our lives, as Peterson has said, is the existence of a replacement trinity. We need, once again, to be delivered from us. And that's where you have to start. You've got to start there. And say... God, I shrunk my life to the size of my life. And won't You fill my eyes with a vision of the glory that is Yours? Won't You help me to be a person who can say, I live always with God before my eyes. Let's pray. Lord, surely Your Word is the ultimate of accurate diagnostics. And we have considered today a stinging diagnosis. It's hard to accept. And yet, Lord, I would pray that You would open our hearts to hear what Your Word says to us to accept Your description of our struggle. And we pray that You would would pry us out of the confines of our little self-defined worlds. And help us to find joy and satisfaction and identity and meaning and purpose and daily motivation. A deep inner sense of well-being 
in the grand and glorious, glorious purposes of Your kingdom. And may that cause us to live in loving and open and humble and unafraid community with one another. May that be a community of courage and love and peace and mercy and compassion and forgiveness and grace. May that community be a glorious workroom of redemption where we grow and grow and grow and grow individually and corporately. And we stand as a light in a fallen world. Because we have been lit by the glory of Your grace as it operates through the instrumentality of our love and relationships and humility with one another. May that be. May that be. Lord, may we not be just another rendition of the obsession of the culture. May we not just be a Christian rendition of self-sovereignty. May we be different. We pray this not as a ritual. We pray this because this will not happen unless we are gifted by Your grace. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Southeastern Family hopes you have enjoyed this message delivered in chapel at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Our mission is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We appreciate your current and continued prayer support for our faculty, staff, and students. We also hope that you will consider financially supporting our ministry and encourage you to go to our website at www.scbts.edu to find out how you can partner with us. In addition, if you are considering a theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, we hope that you will consider Southeastern. You can find out more information about us on the web. Again, that address is www.scbts.edu. Thank you for listening.